1: Welcome to the New Books in Sports Podcast. My name is Bob D'Angelo, and I'm working on my master's degree in history at Southern New Hampshire University. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Adam J. Cribbly, author of the book, Tall Tales and Short Shorts, Dr. J., Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. Welcome to the New Books in Sports Podcast. My name is Bob D'Angelo. And I'm working on my master's degree in history at Southern New Hampshire University. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Adam J. Cribley, author of the book Tall Tales and Short Shorts Dr. J., Pistol Pete, and the Birth of the Modern NBA. Hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to the New Books in Sports podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Adam J. Cribley, the author of Tall Tales and Short Shorts Dr. J., Pistol Pete, and the birth of the modern NBA. Adam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bob. Great. Adam is the director for the Center for Regional History and an assistant professor of history at Southeast Missouri State University in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, the home of the Red Hawks. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about your background academically and otherwise.
0: Sure. So, um, I got my PhD from Purdue University in 2008. And, uh, from there, a couple of adjunct te- te- teaching positions later ended up at Southeast Missouri State and am starting my sixth academic year at Southeast Missouri State. Um, this book is actually my second, um, book that I've had published. Uh, the first though, uh, was a, about the 19th century and Independence Day celebrations in the urban Midwest. So really, writ, you know, read by about six people, including my parents, and so it's it's been nice to uh to to have, to have written and, uh, and talk understand. about it a little, bit, might have a little yeah a little bit more readership here.
1: Very true. Um, talk about the uh, perception of pro basketball during the 1970s. You had the in the 1960s you had the Celtics dynasty, and then in the 80s you had Magic Johnson and Larry Bird coming to ascendance, and then you know you had Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant now LeBron James. Um, David Stern made the comment that the 1970s were the dark ages of the NBA, which you quoted in the book. Do you feel like they were the dark ages back then?
0: I do think that they were. There's a perception that they were the dark ages. Uh, I think that the 1960s were clearly a uh, golden age of pro basketball. You had the the Celtics dynasty, of course, that got all the headlines. You had uh, famous moments like Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. Oscar Robertson averaging a triple-double, and so there are these iconic, kind of bigger-than-life, almost mythical elements of the 1960s. And then in the 1980s, you have what people kind of dubbed the saving of the NBA with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and, of course, later Michael Jordan. And so I think if you, you know, at first glance or at first blush, it does look like uh, really dark days in the NBA in the 1970s. And when I went into the project, honestly, that was what I was expecting, was a very negative uh kind of the the downturn of the NBA. And what I saw instead was that there was no one transcendent team. There was maybe not even the the one or two transcendent players. Uh, there certainly were some very good players and uh and I would argue that Kareem Abdul Jabbar in the 1970s had as dominant a decade as any player in NBA history. But that really it was that lack of identifiable superstar, the marketable team or or player and so there is this perception that the, that it was the dark days. Uh, but I think if you read the book or if you at least study it a little deeper, you'll realize that there's a lot more there than just kind of that blank. Um, it, was a, it was a down decade kind of narrative.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's like they almost got no respect.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. The Rodney Dangerfield of decades, right?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, you, have the, you write in, in your book as an example, Portland wins the NBA title in 1977 and CBS immediately switches to the Kemp Ropen golf tournament.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's that's a pretty bad sign, right? And you know, the they, the the city of Portland celebrated and and had a tremendous uh, time of that celebration. But yeah, most viewers missed it, and so the NBA was definitely not on the same level as, for example, professional football at the time, or even really Major League Baseball, and was very much seen as kind of the um, the, the the lesser of American sports in that decade. And, and in fact, a lot of times it even overshadowed by major boxing matches. Uh, and so it was certainly not the uh, media darling or the the, uh, the the entertainment industry it is today.
1: Yeah. Also, I think you also put the uh, and I almost laughed when I read this is like uh, the Indiana Pacers needed a telethon to to raise money.
0: Yeah, that was a great story and one that I didn't know about. And uh, actually, I was writing that chapter when the I believe it was a Thirty for Thirty short or something about it came out, and so. I just had to laugh because it was stuff that I was I was researching at the time, and and to see how absurd that sounds in 2017, uh, it's it's pretty amazing how far the league's come.
1: Very definitely. What else did uh, during your research did that, that surprised you as you as you combed through all this information?
0: Well, I think one thing that really surprised me was I I come to this as a as a modern fan. I, I wasn't around for for most of the 1970s to watch this, this game. And so it surprised me really how quality the the game was because you hear so many of the narratives about the uh the, the old timers saying how great the game was and it's it's not not good now. Um it's just such a different style of play that I really grew to enjoy and embrace the the nineteen seventies style that was up and down, fast paced, but also a lot of mid-range jump shots, a lot of really skilled players that um that that I was kind of surprised again by the, by the level of play and how much I really enjoyed it. So that broadly was something I, uh, I I really came to uh, take away from researching the NBA in the seventies.
1: Plus they didn't even have the three point shot in the NBA.
0: Right. Yeah. So there was no real incentive to shoot the ball from 25 feet.
1: Right. Although when Jerry West made that 60 foot shot in the playoffs, (laughs) that would have probably won the game for them.
0: It would have. Yeah. And, uh, and in fact, it's funny that there are later instances. So that, that was a, you know, a, a long two pointer, 60 foot two pointer. There was another instance, and I'm, I'm blanking on the year right now, but somebody banked in a 60 footer and they just assumed it was overtime. Well, it was actually worth three points and they'd won. So it took some adjustment once the NBA adopted the three point shot to kind of get used to playing with it.
1: Right. You said you followed basketball more recently. Do you have any kind of background in basketball other than the fan? Did you play or did you root or what was your? Love with basketball, mm-hmm.
0: all of the above. So yeah, so I started playing basketball when I was probably eight years old. I was able to play through three years in college. Uh, I went to a Division three school. So when I tell my students that, they always you know seem really impressed. But I wasn't on an academic scholarship or anything, and so I, I was able to play Division three basketball at Ohio Wesleyan University. And that um, a it gave me a great appreciation for what student athletes do and the hours that they put into that uh, their 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 trade in in college with that. And also, of course, it continued my love of basketball. And so I uh, I was really into college basketball and not only playing, but watching at that point. And uh, then I kind of took a hiatus and really from about 2004. So the malice in the palace was kind of turned me off. I was a Pacers fan or am a Pacers fan until about 2012 or so. I just I didn't pay a lot of attention to the game
1: did uh what position did you play when you played basketball
0: is bench a position cuz i played a lot of that um I, no, I i in 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 high school i played uh i played power forward and in college i, I played power forward as well but there's not a lot of call for a uh, a 6 foot 4 not incredibly athletic power forward at any any level um division 3 or otherwise so uh my my maybe my fondest college basketball moment was when I was in practice in a, one of our assistant coach, we were running out of bounds plays. And one of the assistant coaches turned to me and asked me how he's like, where's the three man go on this play or something like that. And, uh, and I knew, and I, I remember that. So, uh, you know, that was probably the highlight was that I, I knew the plays better than the coaches sometimes, but yeah, as far as on the court, I, I played a lot of forward, but, but mostly, uh, mostly rode the pine in college.
1: Understood. Your first book, uh, as you noted, um, was more about history. It was called Parading Patriotism: Independence Days in the Urban Midwest, 1826 to 1876. Now, um, obviously, anytime you write a book, there's research involved. Uh, was there? I'm sure there was a different kind of approach for each book. Could you compare um, your your methods going into it, or were they pretty much the same?
0: Well, they were a lot different. Uh, I learned a lot from writing the first book, and the first book was a doctoral dissertation turned into a book. And I did, I really was kind of new to research at that point, at least at that level. So I, um I did a lot of newspaper research. I did a lot of research in different archives. And so it, in that way, I guess the basketball project was similar. I, I did go to to travel to some archives and I did definitely use, um use microfilm and, and other newspaper sources, but one big change in, in even that, that, five or six year period between book number one, writing that and book number two, is just how many sources are now available on the internet. And so being able to do a lot of research from the comfort of my office, uh, definitely made book number two easier to research. Although the, the downside of that was that, so my, my first draft of the book was 146,000 words, and I ended up cutting almost 50,000 for the final draft. So uh, I, I overwrote, there was a lot of information that just couldn't make it into the book, but that's a good problem to have.
1: That is a good problem. You'd rather have more than than less. That's for sure. Now, in the nineteen seventies, you know, regardless of what people might think now, they had some very colorful personalities. You had Pete Maravich, you know, Doctor J, Rick Barry, and as you say, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, Earl of Pearl Monroe. Um, talk about some of these guys. What made them such colorful, dominant figures?
0: Well, I think a lot of it is that we think of today, you know, today's media athletes or today's athletes, I should say. Are, have grown up in an age of social media, and they're very, many of them are very cognizant of their brand, um, of their public persona, of their image. And in the 1970s, you had a lot, a lot less of that. Uh, basketball wasn't nearly covered to the extent that it is today, and so a lot of times players were a little bit more unfiltered, and so you get a, you get to see more of their character come out. Uh, if you think about maybe a player like LeBron James today. We know a a lot about him. He's he's well covered. Uh, But in the 1970s, you didn't know a lot about those players unless they were very outspoken. Uh, And so Rick Barry is a great example. Rick Barry gave tremendous interviews in the 70s and reporters flocked to him because they knew he would give them the truth. He would say exactly what was on his mind, even if it was controversial. And so some of those players, you really kind of get to know their personalities better because they're not worried about how they're going to be perceived, and, and players like Barry, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was notoriously kind of acerbic. He he didn't give a lot of interviews, and when he did, he was pretty terse and and, and short with reporters. Um, but all those players, uh, the the really the top athletes of the decade, uh, player you know people got to know what they really felt as opposed to what they wanted to present.
1: Right, and Barry certainly didn't endear himself to other players with his outspokenness. No, not I at would all.
0: imagine. No, not at all.
1: And of course he also mentioned in the book about Kareem, you know, everyone, he had this dour personality, but it sort of came out that he had a sense of humor when he had that part in airplane where you know, he tried to stay out of character and the kid kept pressing him. Yep. No.
0: And that's, and that's a, a classic moment. And if you talk to, uh, or if you read about what players thought at the time when that came out, they were amazed that he had a personality. He just hadn't shown it. He was, he'd gotten burnt a couple different times. And especially because of the, you know, in the 1970s being a. A uh, an African American Muslim, especially when he was in Milwaukee, that was just so out of character in every way that he felt. I think every time he would speak, that his words would be turned around and he was misunderstood. And so he kind of he kind of pulled into his own shell. Uh, There was also an incident that happened in uh, I believe 1974 or five when his uh, his home in Washington D.C. He was in Milwaukee at the time, but his home in Washington D.C. was attacked. And, uh, many of his friends were killed in in that, in that attack. So he, he became even more guarded at that point. And so when he came, when he makes that cameo on airplane or has a the big role in airplane, uh, it really shocks people to see that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has a personality.
1: Almost as good as Barbara Billingsley. You know, it's, it's interesting too. Uh, and you mentioned this in the book is, um, with Julius Irving and uh, Pete Maravich, I mean, there, there was a possibility, and if it had gone through, it would have been very interesting that they both could have been on the same squad in at Atlanta. Do you think those two guys could have coexisted?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that um, it it kind of reminds me of the, and again, I, you know, just pulling some modern comparisons, uh, kind of the Kevin Durant Russell Westbrook dynamic on the court, where you have two people that are very ball dominant. But in an ideal world, they both complement each other well. Pistol Pete loved to pass. Uh, Julius Irving was an unselfish player, and I think that you know you can only imagine the terror that would have gone into opponents' hearts if you have on a fast break a two-on-one with Pete coming down the left side and Dr. J on the right. Um, I think at that point you just get out of the way and can see the basket. Uh, so it, it would have been it would have been high flying. Um, they would have definitely gotten some uh got gotten a lot of publicity for the for the NBA at that point and you know sadly it just wasn't meant to be
1: and you know some of the features you did where you, you do a year by year breakdown which is really great but you do the the features on Maravich and Dr. J and the and the merger um what was it about Maravich that was so in, electrifying to the fans
0: well i think that for many of those fans who hadn't seen Bob Bob Cousy in his prime Maravich was the first player that they can remember who who played in a flashy style he he could make a simple bounce pass but he would make it uh make it flashy he would he would add a little flair and he was a showman um and i think that from the the guard position there hadn't been that many of them in in the nba at that point obviously you have players like earl monroe uh who's flashy and uh but 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 Maravich even took that one step higher like i said he was a, a good passer and was also often flashing his passes so he added a level of excitement. And I think you know another thing I mentioned in the book is that he's a white player and at the end uh in the 1970s the NBA becomes increasingly dominated by African-American athletes. And so you know for a fan in the 1970s there's there's something to the idea that a fan wants to watch TV and and see someone that they can identify with. And so for a white kid growing up in the 1970s to be able to watch Pete Maravich Maybe they're able to identify with him a little more than they are an African-American like Earl Monroe. So for a variety of reasons, I think that Maravich really captured the attention of the public. And, and he'd had almost a mythic career in LSU, averaging you know 44 points a game as a senior. And so there was almost this sense of watching him was an experience. Watching him was, in itself, kind of a form of entertainment.
1: And on the other hand, you had Irving that just seemed to like sort of the basket. I mean, he's a different type of excitement, I think.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's, it's somewhat of the appeal that we see when Magic Johnson and Larry Bird come in the NBA in the 1980s with, you know, there's a white player and a black player. They're both exciting and flashy, but they do so in very different ways. So Merovich actually, much like Johnson, uh, isn't going to, you know, wow you with, with dunks or hyper athletic plays. And instead he's going to beat you with crafty passes and be exciting. And Irving, and this is where it falls apart, Bird, wasn't a dunker like Irving, but Irving, you know, swooping to the hoop and, and scoring, and he was one of those players that uh, he would throw down a dunk, and fans would stand up, and really without even realizing they were doing so, he just brought fans out of their seats, really like no athlete had uh, at that point. And the only other player I think that you can compare him to is a, is a young Elgin Baylor as far as the athleticism, and uh, and and his body control that, that Irving displayed.
1: Definitely. And when we talk about Irving. We have to mention the ABA. I mean, that was, uh, certainly a, a very different type of league with some different rules and different style of play. Could you compare the, uh, the two, the two leagues and the players that they had? By
0: 1976, when the merger happens, they're, they're very similar leagues, at least in far, as far as talent is concerned. There's a huge talent disparity when the ABA first starts in 1967. The NBA clearly has better talent. Um, the ABA catches up, though, and by about 1973 or 4, the talent's relatively equal between the two leagues. The style of play, however, is far different. So in the ABA, with a three-point line, obviously, you have players that are becoming outside shooting specialists. Their job is to basically sit on the perimeter and shoot long jump shots. Uh The NBA, on the other hand, that's less of a an, of an emphasis. In the ABA, they are celebrating high flying forwards that's kind of the the uh where the ABA really excels the NBA is still relying on the traditional dribble the ball down the court throw it into the center who tries to make a post move uh maybe the point guard attacks the rim but but it was much uh, a much different pace a much different style the ABA was also less uh less seen on TV so there was an air of mystique around them that that didn't exist as much in the NBA, and so for a variety of reasons, the leagues were very different. But as I said, by 1976, when the merger happens, the talent level in the ABA has basically reached parity with the NBA.
1: Definitely, definitely. So it was very. I remember living in South Florida. We had the Miami Floridians that first year, and they were, yeah, exactly, very nondescript to be charitable. Um, in the 1970s, there was this perception. Um, you know, I think even you have it in the book where David Stern said that uh, the NBA was seen as this bunch of high salary, drug sniffing black guys. I mean, was there that much of a cultural difference uh, or perception in getting all types of fans to watch and enjoy this game?
0: So just to to clarify uh what what Stern was saying was that there was a perception that that was what the league was. He he wasn't himself saying that that was a that was the issue, but there was a perception that that was the prob that that was a problem. And uh the fan base at the time, you know, if you if you look in the stands, there were more white people than black people at NBA games. And so Stern was concerned and and many others uh both owners and and players and um and other fans they weren't concerned necessarily the fact that a lot of players were African-American was certainly um, something that uh, that that several owners actually are outspoken about the fact that they needed more white players. But even the less racist overtones were that the perception was very negative, that the league had uh, a, a higher percentage of African-Americans, that the athletes were perceived to be overpaid. There's a report in 1980 that 75 percent of athletes were using cocaine in the NBA uh, and and there's on court violence in 1978. You have the uh the very famous punch in which Rudy Tomjanovich is almost killed on a basketball court. And so for a variety of reasons, you have this perception that the league is too black, the league is too violent, the league is uh the, the players are spoiled, uh rich guys, and um and this is all kind of coming to head at at the same time, that there is no singular star. Other than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, that can really take that, uh that, that can really gain that that interest in the game. So Julius Irving actually has kind of a rough patch in the late seventies, and people really question whether he still has it. Pete Maravich blows out his knee; he's basically done by nineteen seventy-eight, seventy-nine. And so by late in the decade, you know, no one's watching the Washington Bullets and Seattle SuperSonics play in back-to-back finals in seventy-eight and seventy-nine. The national narrative; no one just, no one cares. And so that I think is a lot. Uh, all this stuff coming together really leads to a negative perception of the league. Just at the moment that Bird and Johnson enter in 1980.
1: And you did reference the uh, the Kermit Washington punch, and in fact, John Feinstein did an entire book on one punch, which is, was amazing. Um, violence definitely was was uh, was an issue. Um, was it any more? Was there any more violence on the court in the 70s than previously, or even even now? I mean, we had some very bad incidents since then, but that one just seems to have been like a crystallizing moment in NBA history.
0: Well, I think a lot of it was that, obviously, the punch is a singular event that draws a lot of negative media attention to the game, but that also follows on the heel of Sports Illustrated publishing an entire ep well, not an entire article, but the uh, the front-page article that's titled The Enforcers. And the the article really seems to celebrate violence in basketball and that every team has this enforcer on it or and and so i think that um, that coupled with there's also a very famous at the time incident in the 1977 finals where you have two uh, players from each team maurice lucas and daryl dawkins kind of square off old style put up your dukes and uh and and throw punches at each other in the finals and so There is a lot of violence in the 1970s. Uh, There also is a lot of violence in the NBA, you know, really since since its inception. And uh, it was a terribly violent sport in the 1930s and 40s uh, and into the 50s and 60s. In the 1970s, increased media coverage, uh, the punch, those sorts of things really play up to that narrative. The NBA remained violent throughout the 1980s, never to the extent of the punch. But you know, there's a very famous Dr. J and, and Larry Bird fight, uh, and that's just the most celebrated maybe. But that violence really continues, I would argue, through the, and I've seen it argued elsewhere, through the Ewing era nicks of the 90s uh, before it really starts to die down, only to be ignited again in 2004 with the Malice in the Palace.
1: Right. That was that was perfect nickname and plenty of turmoil for that one. How do you think um, pro basketball reflected um, America's culture of the 1970s is there a cultural angle that you were trying to achieve in this book i mean i know you threw in some references the one i like was the ray stevens um the wrestler reference you know that was that was a lot of fun
0: to read that no, there was so the um you know my goal in, in writing the book was both to talk about the nba in the 70s and also to put it in the context of its decade so some of the uh, the players and and some of the The teams and the way that the game functioned was in many ways a reflection of of what's going on culturally and nationally. Uh, To me, a very powerful moment was the day after the Kent State shootings in 1970. Uh, The New York Knicks played against the Los Angeles Lakers and uh, in the NBA Finals. And there were players in the upper deck, or sorry, there were fans in the upper deck at Madison Square Garden who were sitting during the national anthem. Apparently there was kind of a blue haze of pot smoke up there. And and to think that, you know, that's happening at the same time and, and somewhat in response to these larger national issues really caught my attention. And so there are a lot of kind of fun cultural references in there that, that hopefully people will enjoy and pick up on. But I think there's also a thread of that reflection of culture on basketball and of basketball and culture. And to me, uh, you know, as a historian, that was an important thing to, to, to pull out here as well.
1: Right, because you had the turmoil of Vietnam, you had Watergate, you had um, the – the fall of South Vietnam, and and then toward the end of the decade, you had the Iran hostage crisis. So it was just yeah, one thing it just after another. On top
0: of everything. So,
1: do you think that um, 1970s basketball, uh, as more historians start digging into it, do you think that maybe it'll it'll escape that dark ages label that uh, you know it's it's easy one to slap on it, on a on a decade or or era. We we as Americans we tend to label decades. You know the decade of this or the decade of that. But do you think it could escape that and be looked at more critically now? You know, I hope so. Uh, My
0: fear, though, is that it's still, you know, NBA.com, for example, calls it a decade of parody in which there's no dominant team, no dominant player. And I think that that is a a defining narrative. Um, I really like so the Dark Days analogy. I really like how there's a, a, well, it used to be a website, now a book called Free Darko and Free Darko wrote a book about basketball history, looking at really a span of history. And I like the argument they make. They say the NBA is not a dark ages. Instead, uh, if you get close, it's it's a ton of different colors. You know, looked at looked at from afar. It, it looks dark and, and monochrome. But if you get closer, there's there's a lot going on. And so I hope that scholars will continue to kind of unpack and and look at some of those stories and dig deeper into particular teams or players and I think that hopefully they'll see and, and they'll find that, uh, there's a lot going on in the decade. And hopefully, you know, over time, that narrative of the dark days will be replaced by something that's a little bit less, um, uh, negative towards that period in the NBA.
1: Well, now we're at the part of the interview where I ask you, what did I miss? Is there something else that you would like to say about the book that, that I've missed in these questions?
0: No, not really. Uh, I, you know, I, am very excited. Uh, I was very excited to write the book. It was so much fun to, to research and write. And, you know, every time that, that I, I go on a podcast or I'm interviewed, I always think of the, uh, all the different kind of stories and narratives. And I love hearing what, what people who've read the book take away from it. And, um, you know, I, I it's it's funny. I, I've talked to fans of a lot of different teams, and they all seem to really like particular parts of the book better than others. And they want to talk about how their team kind of developed in the 1970s. And so, yeah, it's 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 fun. As a, I think you can read the book as a basketball fan. Obviously, you'll enjoy it. I think as just a fan of 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 history of of the end. Uh, you know, history of the 1970s. I know, for example, that a lot of my interest in writing about the decade came from a baseball book on the 70s, and so. I think that you don't have to be a fan of basketball per se to really take a lot away and see how exciting uh basketball is in a decade. So no particular things kind of stand out, but I think taken as a whole, it's really an exciting story. And, and I hope people have as much fun reading it as I did writing it.
1: Well, which baseball book was it that uh inspired you there?
0: So that was uh Dan Epstein's Big Hair in Plastic Grass. And uh, in many ways, I, I tried to pattern my book kind of on his style where he's looking at it chronologically, but also kind of trying to find this big picture narrative of of how the game is influencing culture and, and vice versa. And um so, yeah, it's it's that that was a big influence in my writing for sure.
1: So, I mean, readers could actually, if if they're just interested in, for example, in the in the section on the Washington Bullets, they could just turn to that chapter because of the way you have it structured year by year. Or if they're big Lakers-Knicks fans, you know, they can go back to those, revisit those early rivalries. So it's it's very, very uh, structured. And, of course, the statistics at the end and the standings are very helpful for the reader as well because, you know, there are a couple of things that I didn't remember until I looked at it again. I went, oh, okay, they swept that series, you know.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I think that that's something as well that, that I was really interested in including because, um, I, I love basketballreference.com, but I don't want to leave it open when I'm trying to read a book. And so I think it's, it's, it's helpful to be able to flip to the back of the chapter and look, Oh, okay. This is how the Cleveland Cavaliers finished this year. Or, well, why did Boston have home court in that playoffs? And it's a, it's a pretty easy quick reference. And, um, and like you said, I think that it's, it's fun to be able just to go. To a part of the story you really like. Again, as an Indiana Pacers fan, if I was reading this book just as a Pacers fan, I might flip ahead to the merger in 1976 and just read about how the Pacers fared. Uh, spoiler alert, they didn't do well, but I think that there's the way that it's set up is intentional in that way that you can kind of pick around. You can, you can kind of jump around and still enjoy the, the, uh, the overall story.
1: And looking at the, at the teams, I mean, we had, can you talk about the, um, uh, the Lakers, their 33? wins in a row and then the 76ers that 9 and 73 season. I mean, that's talking about both extremes.
0: Sure. Yeah. The um you know the the 1972 or 71-72 Lakers of course have this this phenomenal 30-3 game winning streak and um to me baby the the most interesting part of that streak is is how it starts and it starts in many ways after the retirement of Elgin Baylor in uh, in 1971. And it ends at the hands of the Milwaukee Bucks in 1972 in what might have been the most anticipated uh, regular season game uh, of the decade. You know, there was so much attention being paid to this miraculous historic streak. And then, you know, the Bucks, who really the arch nemesis of the Lakers at the time, managed to put an end to the streak. So that's fascinating. Uh, And then, of course, the next year, the Philadelphia 76ers set a record for ineptitude and only win nine games in a season so you know you talk about a league of parity. yet in back-to-back seasons you have teams winning basically 60 games difference the best in 72 and the worst in 73 so not quite as parody driven i think as the the narrative usually suggests
1: what i also what i also found interesting was that they did the nba draft over the phone and ran up these large phone bills it's nothing like it is today
0: oh yeah the uh Right. The, the draft is significantly different. And in fact, just, you know, even the way that that teams kind of looked at the draft um, is very different. So you see in the, in the 70s in the NBA, first round draft picks getting thrown around. Of course, there's no protection on the draft picks or anything like that. It's actually how Pete Maravich ends up in Atlanta. Atlanta had a good team and made a mid-season trade that ended up netting them the number three overall pick. And so uh while there was a lot of attention paid to the draft when a superstar collegiate player would come out a a, a Lou Alcindor, a David Thompson, a Bill Walton. The other years it was kind of an afterthought. It was just something that people did to mark time. They they scouted, but the scouting wasn't nearly to the extent it is today. And of course the draft itself was not the, you know, the extravaganza that it is on on television. And as you noted, it was fun to to see, you know, they they would conduct these conference calls where literally the commissioner would just tell the next team, you know, Phoenix Suns, you're on the clock. And sometime in the next three or four minutes, the Suns person would tell them who they chose. And the uh, the the seriousness seriousness was, with which people take the draft now uh, just right. wasn't there in the 1970s.
1: Well, this has been a very interesting interview for me. And, you know, we know your time is very valuable. This is, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Adam J. Cribbly, who's author of the book, uh, tall tales and short shorts, Doctor J, Pistol Pete, and the birth of the modern NBA. Um, so, what's your next project going to be? Have you have you uh, started anything, or do you have anything in mind?
0: Yeah, I actually have. Um, I'm I'm fascinated still by the NBA in this in this era. And one of the stories that really kind of jumped out at me, and I wanted to learn more about, was late in the 1970s. There's also this issue of the superstar players and the best teams in the league are located in places like Washington D.C. Seattle, Washington, uh, Denver, Colorado, you know, the 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 major markets, New York, Boston, L.A., Chicago. Their teams are pretty bad, by and large, at that period. And uh, especially the story, of the Knicks jumped out at me. And so the next project is actually going to look at the the late 70s, early 80s Knicks and looking at it in terms of both what's going on in New York City at the time. It's a fascinating time in New York City, kind of the rise of hip hop, of punk music. Um, and uh, all kinds of issues going on in the city, and then the Knicks team, who are terrible uh, for most of that period, until late in, or um, early in the '80s when Bernard King arrives, and then of course Patrick Ewing in 1985. So one one different thing about that project is I'm interviewing uh, former players about it, so it'll have a little bit different take than uh, than Tall Tales and Short Shorts, but but we'll kind of move the story forward a little bit, at least for me.
1: Definitely. Well, Adam, we really appreciate you being on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me, Bob. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. Well, you've been listening to the New Books in Sports podcast, and I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you for joining us tonight. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters. We'll talk to you next time.